Welcome to Ridgecrest Baptist. We thank you for listening. Now, here is this week's message. All right, I want to ask you to take your Bibles tonight and turn to Judges chapter 6. Judges 6, we're going to look at verses 25 through 40. The title of this sermon is One True Savior, and it's the preparation for victory, part 2. We started this last week, the story of Gideon. It uh, starts out with his preparation for spiritual victory. And God wants you to have preparation for the next battles that you're going to have to enter into in terms of spiritual battles. And so what we need to do tonight is, is realize that God wants us to be this in, in, enter into this story as Gideon. And God wants you to understand that he's preparing you. He's doing things in your life tonight that you may not be aware of, but... I can assure you that God's at work in your life, and we know that because we studied that in Philippians already. Philippians 2 and verse 13 says, For it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. And what we found last week was that God was working in the life of Gideon, and he was preparing Gideon for this great spiritual battle that we're going to get to in chapter 7. But before Gideon was ready for that, he had to... Be shaped. He had to be transformed. Things had to take place in his life. And so you need to enter into the story tonight as Gideon and realize that in your life, the things that you have in your future and the things that God needs to take you through in order to shape you and chip on you and knock things out of your life and make you into that beautiful diamond that he intends for you to be. He's got to prepare you. For that type of life. And so the way he does that is principled for us in scripture in other words you can look at Gideon and see what God did and you can understand that's what God's doing in your life tonight and will be doing in your life throughout the course of your your Christian life as God continues to work on you and never stops letting um, letting go of you so what do we need to do what we need to do is trust and obey we've got to first of all realize that God's at work and not fighting and begin to see, like when you're here tonight and what you're seeing in this, this truth of Scripture, that's God, the Holy Spirit, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, shaping your life and telling you, these are, this is some of the things that I'm doing in your life. And when you feel that sense that God is t- speaking to you, then you need to trust and obey and join God at work and not resist Him. And what God is doing in your life, in a nutshell, is He's taping, taking you to a deeper faith walk so that um, you can be a, a more effective Christian and give him greater glory. And what he's doing in your life is for your best self-interest. God is not out just to um, do to use you. God loves you. God is working in your life. God is working in your best self-interest, and he's trustworthy. And so as we enter into this story, what we're going to look at tonight is five ways that God is preparing you for spiritual battle. And what we need to do is see this taking place and just... Um, Bow to the, the Holy Spirit and let him work on our life tonight. Here in our text, by the way, if you were not here last week, we have to remind you of a little bit of the story from last week before I just start reading in Judges 6, verse 25. What's happened so far up to this place is we've been, and we've been in a study of the book of Judges where we've seen these cycles where Israel rebels and then they get into uh, just a, a world of, of enslavement to sin and idolatry. And then God has grace on them by delivering them through a human judge, which is really more like a, a lifeguard, a rescuer, 
time after time this has taken place, and Gideon is going to be the next rescuer, uh, savior, human savior that God is raising up. And so the way this story started at the beginning of chapter 6 was the divine Son of God comes to Gideon in the, in the form of what we talked about last Sunday night, which is the angel of the Lord. And remember, anytime you see the angel of the Lord, not an angel, that's a picture of the divine Son of God and what we would say the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And literally, Jesus Christ has come to talk to Gideon. And this happens throughout the Old Testament in many places under the title, The Angel of the Lord. And so under the oak tree where Gideon's family had practiced idolatry, and these were pagan idolatrous religions where they practiced under oak trees, Gideon is, encounters the, the, the divine son of God who's uh, coming to talk to him. And he commissions Gideon saying, Gideon, go in the strength that you have. I, I'm commissioning you to be the next savior And you're a valiant, mighty warrior. And, of course, Gideon was, at this point in his life, like we said last week, more like Barney Fife or Gilligan than he was some kind of mighty, valiant warrior. And he has no confidence. He's a man who lacks confidence in God. And he says, I'm not going to believe you until you show me a sign. And God begins to prepare him for the battle uh, by showing him this, and he, what Gideon does is uh, says, I want you to stay here to the angel of the Lord, and let me go prepare a young goat and some unleavened bread and some broth, and I'll bring it back to you and give it to you as an offering. And that's where we pick up in the story. Look with me, and actually I want to start reading at verse 20. So uh, Judges 6, verse 20, and follow, and I'll read at verse 27. Judges 6, 20, the angel of God said to him, and again, this is the pre-incarnate Christ. The angel of God said to Gideon, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. And he did so. Let me drive that home. Verse 21. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the, unle- un- and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it. The Lord is peace. To this day, it's still in Ophrah of the uh, Abi Ezrites. Now, on the same night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and a second bull seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this stronghold in an orderly manner, and take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. Here in these verses I just read, as we begin this uh, unfolding more about the preparation of Gideon, what we see is that the first of five ways that God prepared Gideon that mirror what's happening in your life tonight. And the first one is very easy to overlook, but I just want to drive it home. And it's, and it's under the um, little phrase that simply says at the end of verse 20, and he did so. The Lord Jesus commanded Gideon to to do something, to place the offering in a specific place in a specific way, and he did so. 
And this was the first act of obedience by Gideon. And it seems small, it may seem trivial, it may not seem important, but it brings us to the first critical part uh, of the story. And it brings us to what I call the first way that God is preparing you for spiritual victory. And that is, number one, God is seeking your obedience in small things. God prepares you, and God is working on you tonight in a, in a way for spiritual victory, and He's calling you and He's calling me to be obedient in small things. Great spiritual victories require consistency. They require us to uh, be obedient, not just in the large things, not just like we talked about this morning. And this very much goes along with what we talked about this morning with the Big Ten, not just, you know, the Big Tens, avoiding those and it goes into being consistent and faithful in character and being a person who is obedient to God uh, in not only the big things, but in the small things as well. Don't overlook obedience in small areas of your life. That's the first way that God is shaping you. He's looking to ask the question, are you stewarding the smaller things in life today in order for you to be given greater responsibility in the future? And so this is, um, you know... What we need to do in our lives, we need to be uh, we need to be faithful to seek to live out the Christian life in terms of looking at the commands of Scripture and, and treat every command as something that we need to seek to obey in Scripture. And we just read about don't grumble and complain in Philippians. That that's a command. That's not a suggestion, and that's a, a command that Paul gave the church. And do all things without grumbling or disputing. And we know if you read into the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that was ever preached, the Lord Jesus, one of the things he did was he pricked the hearts of people by saying that you, what you're doing is you're looking at these, these, these sins in your life and only looking at the outward uh, manifestation of actions and performance. But what he said, what my father is doing is looking deep into your heart to see your motives and attitudes and the reasons you're doing what you're doing. You know, we, you can read this Matthew chapter 5 and 6. For example, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21, you've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother to the point that you want to kill him, to the point that you want to do harm, when you're that angry with somebody, Jesus said you have already committed murder in your heart. And whoever says you fool is already guilty enough to go into fiery hell. And so the Lord expounds on a number of different ways you can read about yourself where he's really saying, uh, I'm looking at not just obedience in the, in, in, on a macro scale, but trying to, to look to be a person who is sensitive to the leadership of the Holy Spirit in their life and being consumed by obedience to God out of the desire to please God and, and glorify him. And so don't uh, despise the small things in your life and don't make excuses. You know, it's really easy, and all of us do this, to rationalize away small commands because we're the Sunday night crowd. I mean, hey, we're pretty good. We're here. We're like 50, the, the upper 50% echelon of the folks that, you know, are in the church because we come on Sunday nights. You probably went to discipleship training. And it's easy for us to rationalize away small commands, but there's something, and I don't know what it is in your life, but maybe there's something in your life that God is seeking for you to be obedient to in a small area before he is ready to move you on into the next victory uh, or preparation for the next battle that he wants you to be victorious in. 
If you want to be used by God, then obey God in the small things and don't ignore those because it's part of your spiritual development. That's the first way that God's working in your life. Then the second way we see is also found in this. And this is a beautiful picture of what God's doing in our lives. And that is number two. God is purging your alternative altars. God purges your other altars in life. Did you notice that Gideon was uh, told by God very clearly um, what to do? He said, take, you know, take your father's bull Take this other bull, and he said, I want you in verse 26 to build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold of your father's family. And do it in an orderly fashion. Man, there's, that's a message. Are y'all seeing that in verse 26? Build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this stronghold in an orderly manner. In other words, Gideon and his family had consented to having other gods in their life. They were worshiping Yahweh, but they were also worshiping other gods. That's the picture of the, the normal Christian in, in the world we live in. We are people that are prone to uh, idolatry, and we don't really call it that. We just call it, hey, I'm passionate about this thing in my life. I mean, but it's when it becomes the ultimate source of what we're living for and seeking and it becomes our security and satisfaction, then that is uh, an altar that God is going to try to tear down in your life. When you say, you know, if you want to know, how do you know if you have an altar in your life, then it's probably be good to ask some questions like, is there something in your life other than the Lord Jesus Christ that you think you can't live without? Um, is there something in your life that you're looking to for security and safety and ultimate satisfaction other than your relationship with God. How does your... And I appreciate you being here on a Sunday night. And I would say, how does your schedule reflect um, the things that you say are important in your life? And obviously, they are due to a significant, significant degree because you're here tonight. But then we also need to assess our, our giving, our checkbook. So those are some questions because you may have a stronghold and that would not be uncommon. We all have strongholds. And that message in verse 26 is for us. It says we need to take the stronghold down and build a, an altar to the Lord on top of it. So what is God doing in our lives all the time in order to prepare us for spiritual victory over anything that's a challenge to us in, in life? God is trying to tear down altars that we've made to foreign gods and build up an altar on top of it to the true and living God. When we do this, it will conflict our life. It will bring our life into conflict with the world that we live in. And it's going to lead to the third way that God is working in your life. And that is number three. God uses your obedience to confront cultural lies. Look at verse 28 with me. Verse 28 and following. It says, and we'll keep reading. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold... The altar of Baal was torn down and the Asherah, and by the way, the Asherah is like a totem pole. And the altar of Baal is like a, a, a cow, probably made out of like um, gilded gold around something that looked like a cow because Baal was the bull. And the idea is that, you know, it represents uh, the male and Asherah is a female and they, they, they go side by side and they produce offspring that's food for the new year. 
and they are trying to bring rain. And so the bale is torn down and the Asherah pole has been cut down and this totem pole has been cut up. And the second bull was offered on the altar which had been built. In other words, they used the firewood from the totem pole, from the Asherah pole. Verse 29, the men of the city said to one another, who did this? And when they searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die, for he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he's cut down the Asherah which was beside it. You just need to stop and think about what's happened here, because again, if we don't read it a couple times and think about it, we might just pass over this. But the people of God, Israel, the Hebrews, the God's covenant people, the you know God's chosen people have reached a place in their faith walk where they are trying to kill a man because he's torn down an altar to Baal and Asherah. And so, um, you know, that's a very accurate portrayal of American society today. Because what's happened in American society today is we've reached a place where people are trying to confront Christians in such a way for trying to do do what has been the historic Judeo-Christian values that society has been founded on for 4,000 years. And so the covenant people of Israel, there's... Saved from salvation in Egypt. They're possessors of the word of God. They're the keepers of the gospel, by the way. And to me, that's the scary part. Because, see, we're running with a baton right now, and it's called the baton of the gospel. And our job is to faithfully run with it and to share it with the world and and ensure that it's kept intact. That it doesn't get altered as we talked about this morning with those Judaizers. And one thing that if you read Paul, he'll tolerate a lot of things. But when it comes to changing the gospel and and, um, affecting what the gospel presentation is, that that how a person can be saved, Paul will absolutely defend the gospel. And so we are the keepers of the gospel right now. We're running with that baton. And we see if we don't run the race effectively and run with intentionality, then uh, we'll fail. Because Israel is a picture of a failed uh, people that took the gospel message that they had and the possession of the word of God. And they completely inverted it 180 degrees. And they are, they're arguing that the defense of uh, Yahweh and the con- destruction of the idols of Baal and Asherah should be uh, the end of Gideon's life. So this is why we have this uh, beautiful commission. We have the word of God. We have the historic values of the of the Orthodox Church that we've been given for 2000 years. The church has stood on certain principles of Scripture and said, this is what the scriptures mean. We have the gospel and how one as I articulated as clear as I could this morning, can be saved. I cannot describe to you any more clearly how a person can come to saving knowledge of Christ than I did this morning. And so we have all these things, and we have to be faithful with them and be intentional about them because this is why it's so important not to let idolatry creep into our life because it's insidious and eventually we'll be so blinded to it that we won't be... We won't be able to see that we're actually defending cultural lies. And when I say defend cultural lies, I don't mean 
march with signs and, uh, you know, be obnoxious. I mean, standing on the truth in a, in a, in a way that is attractive and respectful to other people so that they are drawn to the glory of God. So the idea is don't push lost people away farther, but just simply in love communicate truth. And if we do that, it's going to confront cultural lies. The, uh, the antithesis of that is if our life is not being a challenge to people that are lost, if, if our life doesn't conflict with culture, then it begs the question, why? I mean, what are we believing? At some point, yes, we may have agreement with the, the, the majority of people in our culture that are lost. And we, you know, on certain issues, we will have agreement. But the majority of what we we're, our biblical worldview is going to clash headlong with a secular worldview. And they are the target audience to win to Christ. So whatever you hear tonight, hear this. They are not the enemy. I'll continue to say that. Do y'all understand that I, that's my heart, that we don't treat lost people like they're the enemy? They are the ones we're trying to save. But at the same time, and what we need to make sure is that we're not so much like them that our, culture, our views don't even conflict with their views. Because what we're trying to do is, in love, confront them with truth. And there is such a thing as truth. And so... Um, we have this confrontation, and let's continue to see what else happens in verse 31. Verse 31, but Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal? This is his dad, the guy that had built the altar to start with. Will you contend for Baal, or will you deliver him? Who, whoever will plead for him, that's Baal, shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because someone has torn down his altar. Verse 32, therefore, on that day, he became Jerubbaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him because he had torn down his altar. So Gideon gets a new name at this point. At some point, Gideon became the one who cuts down Baal, the feller of Baal, um, the, the, the Baal killer. But the thing that I really want to drive home and, and point out, and, and, and we're talking about how God is working in your life, and to me this is a critical point. Um, I, w- I hope there's people here that need to hear this. But in the, fa- in the family, Joash, he had reached a point where he was obviously not worshiping God but had worshipped idols. And because Gideon was willing to obey and, and just move forward in simple obedience, Gideon was the man in his family that broke a generational curse. And I want you to hear this statement. Maybe this is for some young person tonight. So listen to what I'm about to say. It only takes one committed follower of Christ to change a family. Just one. And that's the, that's the next way that God's working in your life. The reason you're here tonight is to hear this. Number four, God is challenging you to be that change agent in your generation. You're the one. You're the one. God is talking to you. And most Christians, I've found, will never rise above the level of Christianity in their family. 
If you begin to observe and watch believers and watch what level of, of Christ-likeness they, are, they come to, where they're, they're people that, when people see their life, they would say, I feel like I'm in the presence of Christ. That's what I want people to say about me. I want people to say, he reminds me of Jesus. And when you ask the question, you know, how that looks in terms of how a person is, is living out their life, their kindness, their words, their action, their love, all those things that would go into that, it's been my observation that the average American Christian never rises above the level of maturity that they see in their parents. And that speaks volumes about being a parent in terms of your kids, because if they're just like most other kids, they're going to never rise above the level of your dedication to Christ. So first of all, as a grandparent, as a parent, you need to realize that you can either be a pace setter or you can be in uh, slowing the pack down. I got to thinking about racing. I'm not a big fan of racing. I'm sure there's people in this church that it seems like every church has got race car fans. But if I was, you know, like on my, and I'm, I'm scared to tell you all this because I don't want anybody to actually pay for this because y'all are really good, by the way. Y'all, y'all blessed me today. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for what y'all did to Rogers for helping me with my trip. I, I, I was totally unexpected. That blew me away. And it's encouraged me a lot. Now I don't feel like I'm going just by myself. I feel like y'all are all going with me. And I needed that. I really needed that. Uh, so thank you for what you did this morning in terms of giving me some, um, you know, a love offering toward the trip, but also just making me feel like y'all are sending me out instead of me just going. Because I really want it to be that way. I really want it to be, I'm your pastor going to represent you, like Ridgecrest to the nations. And so, um, I'm reluctant to say what I was going to say, so please don't ever do this. But if I had to do anything um, related to race cars, I would love to do that thing where you pay like $900 or $1,000 and you get to go to Talladega and run around the racetrack for like five laps. That's awesome. I'm a speed. I hate heights. With a, I mean, I'm scared to death of heights unless I'm in an airplane. Then it doesn't bother me, whatever reason. But speed. Now, I love some speed. I've been trying to get Noel to let me get one of those motorcycles. They go like 100 you know, miles an hour, but she won't let me do it. But uh, So for 30 years, she's been nipping my desire to have a motorcycle. But I love speed. I love going fast. And that, was the, that was the real cool thing about the Air Force uh, job I had. So I'd love to do the NASCAR thing where you run around the racetrack. And I don't know if you know this. You can go over there to Talladega, and you pay money, and they put you in a racetrack, and, a race car, and they let you go around the track four or five times. I think you can drive it if you pay enough money. And, you, and most people, they say they get up to like 160, 170, and then they kind of chicken out after that. I mean, they start getting a little loose, and that most guys or the average race car fan gets up to like 160 over there. But did y'all know in the early 1970s, they were racing over at Talladega. They were going 220 miles an hour over there. And they were racing, and they had these top speeds. And NASCAR decided, the officials in NASCAR decided... That's that y- y'all are going too fast. You're going too with too much power, and they they govern those cars down with what are, call, what are called restrictor plates, so that the cars can't go too fast. 
They actually limit how fast a car can go at Talladega to like 190 miles an hour. But the cars, if they didn't have the restrictor place, could go faster. But it was the, 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 the fathers of NASCAR have restricted the power and speed at which the cars today can travel. And I think that's a picture of a lot of American Christians. We're kind of running the Christian race having been restricted by our families with a restrictor plate that was placed on us by our families. And it's slowing us down. And what I'm asking you to do is realize what God is doing in your life tonight is He's trying to take that restrictor plate off your life and say, have at it, man. Hammer down, baby. Woo! (laughs) That's what He's doing. So don't limit the power of God in your life because there's a spiritual battle coming up and you're going to need that power. And notice what happens uh, after this in verse 33, and I'll just finish the story. It says, then in verse 33, then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves and they crossed over and camped. These are the bad guys. Here they come. They're in the valley of Jezreel. Verse 34, so the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called together to follow him. Gideon sent messengers throughout Manasseh. They also were called together to follow him, and he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali. And they came, and they met Gideon. Here we go, man. It's on like Donkey Kong, as they say. I mean, face to face. Good guys against the bad guys. And then Gideon decides, what do you think he's going to say? I need a sign. He says, "What you know, God, here we go. But before we go, here's what I'm going to do, God. I'm going to put a fleece out. And I need um, you, even though you filled me with the Holy Spirit, even though you told me and called me, and hey, you gave me a pretty good sign by the flame shooting up out of the rock. That's a good sign, folks. When that happens, you may want to pay attention. And now he says, uh, I blow a trumpet, and lo and behold, they come. Like, wow, that actually worked. Woo! That's surprising. And he gets ready to go into battle, and he throws out a fleece. Now, let me finish with the story of the fleece. And here's, here's what a lot of Christians get confused about. Most Christians, and we've actually kind of used this in the English language, We say you need to put a fleece out. And what we mean by that in the English language is a fleece is a way to determine what God's will is. But that's not what the Bible says. So hear me out. A fleece is not determining what God's will is. And a fleece is a shepherd, I mean a sheepskin. A sheep hide, fuzzy, white, soft sheep, cut, you know, tanned out. That's a fleece. And Gideon was not asking, God, what's your will? Look at verse 36. Verse 36, Gideon said, If you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. God had spoke to him and told him what his will is. Gideon was not seeking what the will of God is. Gideon was seeking if God was capable of doing what he says he will do. And what Gideon was saying is, I need to know before I go into battle, if you are who you say you are, and if you're trustworthy, and if you're good, 
And if you're really working in my best self-interest, man, that, that's what God is doing in our lives. He's constantly saying to the next level of your spiritual faith walk, I want to prove again to you that my word is true, that you can read the scriptures and you can cling to them as absolute truth and you can trust that God is doing what he's doing in your best self-interest. That he's not only good, but he's great, he's sovereign, he's powerful, he's a, a God that is large enough in terms of his power to be the Almighty and to carry out his plan for your life. That's what God is doing in your life. And the reason Gideon put a fleece out is because throughout the scriptures, all the way from the Old Testament forward and in the time of Gideon, the sheep were always considered to be a symbol of God's people. And even they are today. I'm the shepherd of the flock. In fact, I'm teaching people in Ecuador about how to be, we're literally calling the lesson, one of the lessons I'm teaching is how to be a shepherd. And so throughout the course of Scripture, the people of God are always equated with sheep, and the fleece is a symbol of the people of God. So you would be part of the fleece. And in the day of Gideon, the fleece for Gideon specifically pictured Israel. It was a little model of Israel. And he was saying, I, I, I want you to do something for me. And he says in verse 37, um, verse 36, Then Gideon said to God, If you'll deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, behold, I'll put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece only and it's dry on all the ground, then I'll know that you'll deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. Verse 38, and it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Dew in the Bible is a picture or a symbol of the presence of God to bless. Do in the Bible, throughout the Bible, and it was manifested with manna coming down like do, is a symbol of the blessing of the anointing of God. So do is the anointing, the fleece is Israel. What he was asking, he is, Gideon was saying to God, it wasn't a random test. What he was saying to God is this, if you are indeed our God, and if we are indeed your people, as you say we are, then let your presence fall on us and no other people around us. If the dew is on Israel and not the surrounding ground, then Gideon would know that Israel was who the Word of God claims to be and make them out to be, which is the people of God. And so what Gideon is really questioning is, why have we been so oppressed? And in the morning, he rings out this unbelievable amount of dew, and he realizes that God is at work here supernaturally. And it appears that he now begins to understand more of the picture. And then he goes to verse 39. Verse 39, it says, Then Gideon said to God, Do not let your anger burn against me, that I may speak once more. And just leave the grace of God. Because, I mean, he knew he was pressing the test right here. I mean, he's like, Please, don't let your anger burn against me, God. And God was gracious and that's how God comes to us, folks. You ought to worship God tonight because he gives you one more chance. 
And God, and God said to him, let me, uh, excuse me, and he said, uh, don't let your anger burn against me that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece. And let there be dew on all the ground. Verse 40, God did so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece, and dew was on all the ground. And it was in that story that that's where Gideon, really the light bulb came on for him. That's when he realized we did this to ourselves. It was our dryness toward God that has got us into this predicament. And it was a confirmation for him that the problem lie in Israel's idolatry and their rebellion against God that had caused dryness in their own life, that God had not gone anywhere. And now the nations around them had oppressed Israel, so it appeared to be that their gods were anointed, but in fact it was God was in control of this, driving them back, preparing them for battle and calling them back to faithfulness. And it was a a beautiful picture of grace and patience and long-suffering And we have the Word of God to us tonight, folks. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. And we have one other thing that we always want to remember, and that is the crucified Christ on the cross saying, It is finished. And because of that, the last thing that we can see that God is calling us to is learn to live a life, and this is number five, learn to live a life without fleeces in your life. God is pressing us to have a faith that doesn't need... To continually challenge God to prove that He is good and great. We hope this message will help you in your spiritual walk and growth. For more about Ridgecrest, please visit us on the web at www.rbc-tuscaloosa.com. Have a great day and God bless.